You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning. <laughs> We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 20. Five all the way through 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I have not uh, met you yet, that was, that was lovely. Your accent is my favorite. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Andrew, and let me just say happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. It's like we've t- turned the corner, there's lights, it's, I cannot... I cannot wait. Uh, if you have not made plans to be with us next weekend as we light that massive tree, it's going to be glorious. I was out there yesterday and uh, watching the guys hang the lights. I really had no part in that and was grateful for them. Um, but you're not going to want to miss that. Um, but this morning as we, we come in, uh, this is, I was talking with Rachel, this is always one of my favorite Sundays, uh, is the one right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a reason that sometimes there's people in town who haven't been in town for a while. Sometimes there's people out of town who it's just nice for them to be out of town. Uh, I'm kidding. I don't mean that. I love when everyone's here. Uh, but there's something about this anticipation of we've just come off. You're a little sleepy still from the fullness of your bellies. And, and we're aiming towards Christmas. Uh, and so we come today. It was one more week in our study of Luke before we take a break for Advent. Um, but we come to a passage that there's a danger to it because you've heard this story. 
And some of you have heard multiple sermons on this. And some, some sermons that are going to be better than one I give today. And I've given sermons on this. And there's a real power to this story. It's, it's one that we've, we've read. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it a million times. And even if you haven't come to church, you've probably heard this story in some capacity somewhere. And, and my hope is as we step into it that you'll, you'll stay with me. Because there's something here for, for each and every one of us. And so just to kind of break through the mold, I want you to start a little participation here. Just turn to your neighbor and just say, hello, neighbor. Okay, let's just practice. Just turn to your neighbor. Hello, neighbor. Okay. For some of you, that's like the most uncomfortable part of the morning, and it's over with, okay? You're like, we already did meet and greet. Why are you doing this to me twice? Don't you know who I am? Uh, how many of you know your neighbors? Just like raise, raise your hand. Know your neighbors, Okay. So can I just tell you both services, I've been so encouraged by that, that there's a lot of hands raised of people like, yeah, I, I know my neighbors. Over the years, uh, we as a family have tried to make the effort to know our neighbors, and sometimes we, we've ended up sharing meals with our neighbors. We've had a, kind of just a, a slew of kids over at our house all the time. Sometimes we've been threatened by our neighbors with biker gangs, and that's real story. Someday you'll hear it. Uh, but like things have gone down in the West household. But there's something about the way that we are structured and the way our homes are built and we've got a garage that we can pull into and some of you are like, that's a dream, I can't pull into my garage. Uh, but, but space that we can just go into, never have to interact with anybody. And I remember a friend of mine telling me this story of that. She's like, I had this neighbor who lived next to me forever and, and I never did more than just like the, hey, how's it going? And that is until one day when things escalated very quickly. And she said she was coming into her house and she wasn't even really looking and she's walking up and she sees her neighbor coming towards her and that, that already was different because they had like had this established rule of life like we just wave, we just wave and that's it. And he's coming towards her and he comes up and he said, hey, I just, um, I don't know how to ask this but I, I live alone and um, he said, I just got back from the doctor, and I've got, I've got this thing on my back, and I need, I need to put this prescribed medical cream on it, and I can't reach it. Would you be willing, would you be willing to just put this on my back, right? Like, how many of you know your neighbor that well, right? Like, how many of you are like, oh, yeah, let's do this, you know, like just, right? That's a different level. That's pretty, pretty intense, and again, what we discover this morning is that Jesus is going to take our idea of who our neighbor is, and he's going to expand our neighborhood far beyond uh, what we would imagine. And so, so I want to just walk through this with you. And so let's just pick right up, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in Jesus' day and age, uh, the, the posture of a rabbi, someone like Jesus, as they were teaching, is they would, uh, they would sit and everyone would kind of gather around them. If there's a question, someone would stand kind of respectfully honoring the rabbi that was teaching to ask a question. And we're told here that this lawyer stands up. Now, this lawyer would be like one who was a, a scribe steeped in the scriptures, would know uh, the Bible inside and out, had spent so much time and energy in this, and we're told that this lawyer stands up respectfully looking at the rabbi in the midst of his teaching, and he's going to put him to the test. So right away, we know his intention is really to, to test what Jesus knows. And what's, what's his question? Well, his question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, the, this lawyer, he's asking this question, and if you were with us last week, and Jesus talked around uh, the beauty of God's will being revealed to little children, and that the wise and understanding were missing the point, the lawyer would be one who is the wise and understanding who is missing the point, because the real reason he's asking this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is not because he wanted to know what Jesus really thought, he wanted to see if Jesus agreed with him. Right? He, he wanted to know, does Jesus have the right answer? Like, I have the right answer. And haven't, haven't we all done that to somebody at some point in our lives where you're asking a question you already know the answer to? You just want to know if you can be friends, right? You're like asking them, like, do you agree with me? And we're in the same mindset on this. And so he's saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the funny part of this question is to receive an inheritance, you really actually don't have to do anything. It's something that's given, not something that's earned. And the question shows that this lawyer wants to know, what's the right action? How should I act? How can I earn eternal life? What will get me into heaven? What's that bar that my actions need to exceed just enough so that I can have eternal life? And Jesus, in verse 26, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, Jesus is so good at this. People ask him questions all the time, and what does he do? He responds with a question. He just flips the conversation. Jesus is recorded asking over 300 questions in the Gospels, right? He's asked about 180 questions, which means he is the one who's constantly trying to mine people's minds, get to know them, reveal what they're thinking, and understand what, what, what's going on inside their minds. And in this moment, Jesus flips this question and asks a question, and this was a typical way that rabbis would often teach. They would ask a series of questions to see where you stood on these things, to understand how you were thinking about them. Someone once asked a rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question to which the rabbi responded, why shouldn't a rabbi respond to a question with a question, right? This is just the way they operated and the way that they worked. And Jesus was really good at this because Jesus is really good at being present to those who are in front of him, understanding their motives and the question behind the question. And so he's inviting dialogue here with this lawyer who's simply trying to prove his point. But what you should recognize is that anytime Jesus enters into a dialogue with someone like this, they usually don't know what they're in for. And the question that they're asking, he's about to spin in such a way that they're like, I wish I would have just stayed in my seat. And so Jesus continues, and he, or the, he asks the man, what is written in the law? He points him to the scriptures that this lawyer would know well. He says, how do you read it? How, how are you interpreting this book? What, what are you seeing that would uh, be the actions that would cause you to uh, receive eternal life? In verse 27, the lawyer answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We see Jesus give this summary in another time when he's given that same question. You're going to love God, you're going to love others. And, and where is this lawyer pulling this from? Well, he's pulling it from Scripture. He, he's narrowing down these 613 commands to two, and he's pulling them from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which is known as the, the Shema, Hear, O Israel. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this passage was to be recited, the Shema here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, was recited over three times a day uh, for devout Jews. And then he pulls from another passage in Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And so he's pulling and summarizing and he's saying, I think these are the two most important things, to love God and to love others. And Jesus responds to him in verse 28, he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now again, the the answer that the lawyer is giving is the same answer that Jesus gives elsewhere in the gospel accounts. And he's saying, if you can love God fully, if you can love your neighbor completely, if you do that, you, you will find life and you will find it to the full. And you will find it everlasting in Christ and in Christ alone. Do this and you will live. Now let's pause here for a second because Jesus is saying, do these two things. Live these two things. Embody these two things and you will find life. This seems important that he's summarizing things down to two things. And if it seems important, it's because it is important. But it also is impossible. To love God fully, to love your neighbor fully and completely, do this and there's no fault in you. For some of you, this test was failed just trying to come to church this morning, right? Like you already were angry at your neighbor because they were driving too slow in front of you or because your family was taking a little longer to get ready than you thought they should be taking and now we're going to be late for church and you pull in and someone pulls in and takes your spot and all you can say is, bless your heart because we're at church and you can't be mad at them. And you've already lost. But the conversation doesn't end here, does it? No, the lawyer hears Jesus' response. Jesus agrees with him. This is a good response. This is a right response. Do this. Embody this and you will live. But verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, it reads, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. Justify. This word that means to be in the right. The word that's used often in the New Testament to designate that uh, someone has a right standing with God. That they're justified before him. But here, the lawyer wishes not to be justified in, in God's view. He's really trying to justify himself in his own eyes and in the eyes of those listening. He's trying to prove his point. He's desiring to save face. And so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, to me, this is actually a a great question because the man wants to know the limits of his love. He wants to know what's the boundary line of who I have to pay attention to in my life to live well and fully. He wants to know how far this love extends uh, to to which neighbors and, and where. Where are the lines? Something we're often seeking of like, how how much is just enough to love well? 
What does it mean to love God? Like, where's that line so I know I'm just on the other side of it and I can, I can feel good. I can feel as though, like, oh, no, I'm justified in my actions because I'm doing just enough. Now, remember, this lawyer, he knows his scriptures. Right? He's already drawn lines to Leviticus 19.18. And if you read Leviticus 19.18 in its entirety, it reads like this. It's on the screen. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if you were just to take this by itself, rip it out of context, you might be able to piece together that, ah, okay, this isn't as hard as I thought. I'm just to love my own people. The, the, the Hebrews were supposed to love the Hebrews. The Israelites were just to love the Israelites. I, I'm just supposed to, to love my own tribe. Okay, that seems a little bit more palatable. Uh, like I can love those who, who think like us, who, who act like us, who live like us, who vote like us, who laugh at the things we laugh at, who hate the things we hate, right? That seems maybe attainable. We'll just stick to ourselves. But if you read just a little further in Leviticus, that idea is blown up really fast. And you realize the lines around who is our neighbor are a little more expansive than I think any of us are ready for. Leviticus 19.33 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, as a brother or sister, as a neighbor among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall love the sojourner and the stranger as yourself. Why? What's the motivation? When, when God was speaking this to his people at that particular time and place, what was he emphasizing and reminding them of? Why were they to love the stranger and the sojourner, the wanderer, as themselves? Well, he gives them their motivation. Remember who you are. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. And what's, what's God pulling from? He's, he's reminding them of their story of how he rescued and he redeemed them. He's saying, do not forget, you were slaves. You were treated poorly by a ruthless king. But I freed you. I redeemed you. You have been freed and you have been freed uh, from living under the oppressive rule of a tyrant and you have been freed to live freely and to love freely in the way of the king of kings. You are now operating under a different system and a different way of life. Don't go back to Egypt. There is nothing but death there for you. Do not live like the way of Egypt because there is nothing but death there for you. You were strangers in a foreign land, and I rescued you. So love the stranger just as I have loved you. This is what he's, he's pulling from and what God is pointing his people to. And so the, this man's asking this question, who is my neighbor? Understanding the, the context of all this, but he's still trying to draw out his lines. And so how does Jesus respond to this question of who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. And when Jesus tells a story, we should all be ready because it's about to get interesting for every one of us who's listening. Whenever Jesus tells a story, there's always this moment where you think, I know exactly who he's talking to and it's not me. I think I'm safe in this one. And then suddenly you find yourself in the story and it blows everything apart and turns everything upside down as he points you into the way of true life. 
And so Jesus replies to this man. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, one of the ways that Jesus is so effective in telling stories is he uses uh, kind of real places and real circumstances that could happen to any one of us. And the audience that he's speaking to in this moment uh, understands that to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, there are some treacherous passes that you would go through. Jerusalem sits around 2,500 feet above sea level. So in any direction that you leave from Jerusalem, you are always going down. But if you head east towards Jericho, you're actually going to head so far down that you would end up 800 feet below sea level. Now, the corridor that would go through that was winding and at times had overhangs and cliffs around it. This passage was considered dangerous. And there's a real passage still that goes this way. Robbers would often hide out in the rocks awaiting anyone who is passing by, anyone who is unsuspecting, maybe coming from Jerusalem or heading up to Jerusalem. And this man was making his way through when suddenly he was stripped, he was beaten, and he's left for dead just lying on the side of the road, unconscious, bleeding out. Now by chance, we're told, and we start to get introduced to more of the characters of the story. By chance, a priest was going down that road, verse 31, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This priest happens to come by, A priest is one who would be serving in the temple in Jerusalem. So either he's heading up there, he's coming down, but as he comes by, he, uh, he just makes his way across, sees what's going on, but ignores the man entirely. Just continues walking past. Now those listening to the story and taking this all in, they'd be listening and they'd be like, that doesn't seem uh, like a right action, but they know Jesus is setting them up for something because if they've been following Jesus long enough, they know there's always a punch at the end that's coming and so they're just waiting in this moment. Like I don't want to get too invested because he's about to just turn my head upside down. We're not told what the priest was thinking. We're just told he was avoiding the man. Passed on the other side of the street. Seeing the man, he avoided him. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite was a descendant of the tribe of Levi. They assisted in the work of the priest. They were, if there was a, a ranking, they would come under the priesthood. But just like the priests were told that this religious leader passed by on the other side. Seeing the man, he ignores him and walks by on the other side. Now we can make some guesses as to what was going through their minds. That for a priest or a Levi or anyone for that matter to come into contact with someone who looked as though they were dead. That would make them ceremonially unclean. That would mean that they would have to do purification rites for over a week in order to have right stand again. To be able to go back to their priestly duties. And and actually, the Jewish tradition had drawn this out so far, kind of stacking on top of of, of stacks of laws and, and traditions, that they said that even if your shadow were to be cast on this person, you would now be unclean. And so they're making sure that they're giving a wide berth so as to come nowhere near this man because that would be really inconvenient for them. Because what if the priest was being chosen for one of the special duties that upcoming week and he had to turn it down because he was unclean? Or if the Levi was going to get to assist in something that he'd been waiting for his whole life, but then because of the inconvenience of helping somebody else in their problems, he could no longer do what he had been waiting so long to do. And so they kept their distance. Seeing the need, 
but moving past it. Now, it's easy for us as we listen to this story, uh, it's easy for us to take shots at the priest and the Levite. A man's lying in the road in deep need and they just walk past him. They see him, they actively ignore him. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because how many of us have been in Holiday Market or in Target and you've seen someone you know and you're like, oh, I don't want to talk to them today, right? And you just grab your cart and you're like, (laughs) right? You laugh because you've been there. Like, ah. We all have that. That's inconvenient. I'm on, a, I'm on a schedule. I have things I need to do. I can't be burdened with somebody else's burdens. I've got enough going on in my own life. How can I possibly help you? Don't you see? I'm drowning. If I try to help you, we're both going down. And Jesus continues on. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. I can already tell you're hearing this wrong because that's not shocking to you. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Two words to pay attention to here. Samaritan and compassion. Samaritan because Samaritans were seen as less than in the eyes of the Israelites. The whole crowd that was gathered around Jesus would have seen the Samaritans as the enemies. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was working his way through Samaria and he he sent the disciples out ahead of him and they said, no, you can't come through this way. And what was his disciples' response? James and John? Like, Lord, would you like us to call down fire? Would you like us to destroy them? Because we would love to. This was the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. This was centuries-old hatred worked up to each other. The Samaritans worshipped at the wrong mountain. They came from the wrong lineage, and there was this bad blood between them that was, that was just fueled from the time they were born. And what we read now is that this Samaritan had compassion. Compassion. This is the same word that Luke will use later on when he's telling us the story of the prodigal son. That when the father sees his son from way off, after his son has gone wayward and and spent all his inheritance and lived in wild living and he's coming back to the father, that the father sees him and he has compassion and that compassion moves him towards the son. We also see the same word used uh, when Jesus sees the widow whose son had just died. He has compassion. He is moved and he moves towards her. So here the Samaritan has compassion. He is moved by the plight of this man lying on the ground. But his compassion does something to him. He doesn't just feel it. He's not just moved. His compassion moves him towards the other and at great risk and at great cost to himself. He steps into the mess that he sees. And again, as Jesus is telling this story, that last line alone would have caused the entire crowd to gasp or just to sit in stunned silence. It's hard for us to get into the mindset of that. And I was trying to think through like a modern day example. And the closest I could come to would be like if I was telling this story and I said, and finally there was a member of Hamas who saw this Jewish man bleeding out and he stopped and had compassion on him, right? And some of you hear that and you're like, no, nope, nope, that's not possible, and this is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's, he's breaking all of our categories. He's trying to get, get us shaken up a little bit so that we can see clearly to the main thrust of what he's getting after here. Who's your neighbor? I'm going to show you just how expansive your neighborhood is. 
But then he doubles down. He doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say the Samaritan has some compassion. No, he, he says, verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I mean, this man, he binds him with oil and wine, most likely binding his wounds and pouring the, the wine over top to soak in the bandages and uh, to, to kind of sterilize the wound. And then he sets him on his own animal and he takes him to the inn. Now remember, this man's a Samaritan. Uh, the closest town that he would be going into was most likely a Jewish town that he would be stepping into. And he's finding an inn where he can walk in with a wounded man on his own animal. And he's like, hi, I'm a Samaritan. Right, and, and like, it, here's, here's a Jewish man, right? To put this in, in different context, okay? Let's go back to the 1800s because who doesn't want to be a cowboy? We all want to be a cowboy, right? Imagine this. Cowboy lying on the side of the road with two arrows piercing him. Native American comes along, sees the man bleeding out, and so he picks him up, puts him on his horse, and takes him to the nearest town that's full of other cowboys. What are they thinking happened? Right? That man is putting himself at risk to save this man. That's what the Samaritan's doing here. He's putting him, his, himself at risk. There's cost to him here. He doesn't know what the reactions are going to be. And yet he steps in, takes the man to the nearest town. And the next day, he gives the innkeeper two denarii to make sure that he could be covered for up to two weeks. And then he vouches for the man. If this isn't enough, uh, you, you, you come to me and I'll, I'll pay the rest. I'll take care of him. See, the Samaritan's actions are more than just placing a Band-Aid on the man. It's more than just being like, I see you. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. He, he embraces him. He takes him. He sets him up to thrive. His actions bring the possibility of life and healing, comfort and care. And now, as the story comes to a close, Jesus looks at the lawyer, and what does he say? Verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? I mean, the answer's obvious. Like, the silence in the air as Jesus is waiting for him to respond. Like, everyone's, like, just sitting there like, I can't even believe this is unfolding the way it is. And you can almost hear the man's hesitation to answer because he's going to have to speak the unthinkable. In verse 37, he said, the, the one who showed him mercy. Even there, he can't say the Samaritan. He's doing everything in his power not to give credit to the Samaritan, but he's just saying the one who showed mercy, the one who showed compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. What's he saying here? So you asked who your neighbor is. You asked, what does it mean to inherit eternal life? What do you need to do? Well, you need to go and do likewise. You need to walk in the way of love. You need to walk in the way of the kingdom. This is the way to eternal and full life. You go and do likewise. What you've heard and what you've said, now go and live. You can't just know these things and have the right answer to be able to raise, oh, no, no, I know, I know the answer. No, you have to embody this as a way of life. And the lawyer is left with so much to think about, just as we are. Because we hear this passage all the time and we still wonder, uh, 
but what does this actually look like? Right? We still come to the end of this, and Jesus hasn't answered really who our neighbor is. And we're like, but, but really, but who's our neighbor? How far do I have to take this? Because we hear this, and we recognize love is incredibly inconvenient. Love is really, really hard. As someone else once said in Scripture, he said it like this. He said, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love's impossible. But Jesus, in this moment, as he's talking with this lawyer, he is expanding this man's neighborhood. And as we're listening in to this same conversation, he's doing the same to us. He is expanding our neighborhoods. Author Kenneth Bailey reminds us, the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, it's not answered. Instead, Jesus reflects on the larger question, to whom must I become a neighbor? To whom must I become a neighbor? There's a proactiveness to this. Who am I going to step forward to be a neighbor to? And this is the question uh, for us because we, we often want clean lines of delineation, right? Like, okay, who am I to become that neighbor to? Uh, but another author with a fantastic name, Klein Snodgrass. Man, Snodgrass. That's a last name if you ever had one. He says it like this. He says, Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people may feel they have completed their obligation to God. Love does not have a boundary where we can say we have loved enough. Nor does it permit us to choose those we will love, those who are our kind. See, we're always tempted to limit the reach of our love for the other. We wish to extend it only to those that we deem worthy or will reciprocate or won't feel like it's wasted on. But the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us what proactive compassion and love look like. And when we read this, it all seems too much. And again, Kenneth Bailey points out and he notes what is required from this parable is beyond our capacity. How can we love like this? We cannot do enough to inherit eternal life. Instead, we must learn and trust in what has been done for us. And from that deep well, then we can begin to love God and love others. We cannot love like this unless we rightly order our love. And what do I mean by that? We love because we were first loved. We love because he made the first move towards us and loved us. And we love to our fullest extent only by his love. And again, if loving like this sounds hard, it's because it is. If loving like this seems impossible, it is apart from Jesus. Loving like this has only been made possible through the way of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, through the life of Jesus. To look at this parable another way. Haven't we all 
found ourselves at some point battered and bruised and in need of help? Haven't we found ourselves broken, feeling as though we're cast aside and no one's paying any attention to us? Instead, people are just walking over us because their life's continuing on, but you feel stuck where you are. And the self-help gurus of our day, they'll tell you how to fix yourself. They'll give you 10 steps to peace. And mostly it just means try harder, do better. Get after it. You can pull yourself up. You can, you can do this. And you might be able to sustain that for a season, but it's going to exhaust you. And you're going to find yourself always chasing something that you never, ever attain. The cancel culture warriors would convince you that you're on the ground because this is your fault anyway. And I would help you, but if I associate with you, then everyone's going to cancel me too. So I'm just going to leave you to your own devices uh, because you brought this on yourself, right? A mantra that we don't need anyone else in our lives to reinforce because we're so ready to reinforce it anyway. That we're not worthy of love, that we could never earn love. Who would ever fully love us if they fully knew who we were and all the things that we bring to the table? Good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. And the problem with this is that for too many of us, we've allowed this way of thinking to become our way of thinking. We allow our neighbor to suffer because we've suffered. And if I'm suffering, then you should suffer. How can I help you if I can't help myself? How can I help you if you're not even willing to make an effort? How can I help you if you're not willing to, to make some strides or, or to be good enough so that you can kind of come alongside? Because if I, if I go down with you, it's, it's going to be ugly. And we don't see the effort of loving them as worth it. Because what difference is it going to make anyway? They're stuck in their addiction. They're stuck in their way of life. I'm just, I'm just one person. But to me, we think like this because we have forgotten who we are. We've forgotten who we're created to be. We've forgotten the invitation that Jesus has made possible through his life, death, and resurrection. That if we are kingdom people, followers in the way of Jesus, there's a different way that is possible. See, because all of us in this room, we were strangers in the land at some point, broken, sinners in need of a savior. And what Jesus is reminding us is he's telling this story, he's living this story in real time. Because Jesus does not look beyond you. He does not look beyond your hurt or your pain, but he sees you. And in his compassion, in his mercy, he does not step over you. He does not move to the other side of the road. He moves towards you. Jesus meets you where you are. And he bandages your wounds. And he brings healing. But he doesn't stop there. He pays your debt entirely. He sets you up to flourish in relationship with him. And when you're healthy, he says, look, now I want you to come have dinner with me tonight and for the rest of all eternity. That's his invitation to us. Jesus tells them this parable. 
as he's actively living this parable in real time. And I know you hear me say this all the time, but Jesus is living this out. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Where the priests and the religious leaders add to the weight on people's backs, trying to earn salvation, if you're just good enough, if you just try hard enough, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God so that what was once impossible is now possible through him. So as we read through the parable of the Good Samaritan and we're asking who our neighbor is and we're seeing our neighborhoods expand, we also have to step back and realize that Jesus was the greatest neighbor of all in his pursuit of us and our brokenness. And when we understand that, when we understand his mercy and his kindness, then in gratitude, right, in gratitude, we just spent a holiday uh, of thankfulness, in gratitude, when we recognize what God has done for us in Jesus, in gratitude, loving God becomes a natural response receiving his love, and then giving that love right back to him for he is gracious to you. And so we love God. And as that love wells up inside of us, as it begins to overflow in us because he is so kind, he is so good, then we begin to love our neighbor because we also begin to recognize that like us, our neighbors are lying on the road in need of help. And our great God has come for us. And in his love that overflows us, now we can move towards the other with compassion and action. And in loving your neighbor, you show your love for God. And you show the love of God. This is what Jesus does when he tells stories. He he just messes with us in the best of ways. He's saying, you want to settle just for this byline. Let me tell you, there's something greater I'm calling you to. And so, in closing, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. The first one is this. How is the mercy of God shaping my life? How is the mercy of God shaping my life? And some of you might be like, it's not. I don't believe that that's real for me. I don't believe that God has any kindness towards me. I've never stepped into that. And maybe you just need to sit there for a while and just receive, understand that Jesus sees you. He's come for you. He's offering life. The invitation to life stands before you, wide open. That he, he willingly went to a cross to bear your sin and shame, to die in your place so that you could live forever with him. And that's not just a future event. That begins now, to live with him now, to experience life with him now. But is that mercy shaping your life? Because what I found is when when I'm sitting in the mercy of God, it really helps me to be more merciful to those around me because I recognize my need for mercy every moment, every day. So how is the mercy of God shaping my life? Second question is this, who is God calling me to become a neighbor to? This isn't reactive, this is proactive. Who has God placed in my life that he's calling me to become a neighbor to? To lean in with, 
to love as we have been loved by God. And I'd encourage you, this, this, when people are like, you know, God usually doesn't speak to me when I pray. Pray this, God, who are you calling me to become a neighbor to, right? And just, there's going to be people that come to mind real quick. Some of you might have like, the list just comes. You're like, that's too many. Just give me one. Just give me one. Who is God calling me to become a neighbor to? And then the last one is this, how is God calling me to love my neighbor? Practically, how is God calling me to love my neighbor? See, what I, what I found is that when I forget the mercy of God, love does not come from me quickly. When I don't remember the mercy of God, I become incredibly unmerciful towards those around me. But when I remember his mercy, man, my, my patience becomes stronger. Because I remember what he's rescued me from, what he's redeemed me from. And when I begin to remember that God came in pursuit of me and the different people he's used in my life to pursue me, I'm like, okay, Lord, I want to be available to be someone who's pursuing others on your behalf. So who are you calling me to become a neighbor to? And how is God calling me to love my neighbor? And what I know to be true, because I've felt it in my own life, I've talked with some of you in this very room about this, is that sometimes we've, we've loved and we've given love and we feel like it's gone nowhere and it's been, been wasted, so we find ourselves actually withdrawing our love, holding back our love because it feels safer. The risk feels too great to love. And so maybe God's calling you to once again step in and love your neighbor, love someone in your life that you've just given up on. But sit with these. Ask God to speak to you, to, to sift through your heart. And as you uh, have received mercy, so extend mercy. And may the God of compassion give you eyes to see as he sees. And as you love God, may you be moved to love your neighbor. And by loving your neighbor, may the love of God be seen. You pray with me. Father, as we sit in this space, Lord, I ask for you to, to speak to us, to reveal who you're bringing into our life, who you want us to pursue. But God, I also pray that you would help us not to be so, so quick to action um, that we skip receiving your mercy. Uh, but that we would stop and we would pause and we would sit and wonder at your kindness towards us. That we deserve death for our actions, the wrongness in our heart, uh, and yet you have provided life by paying that debt in full that you offer us freedom. And so, Lord, as we receive your uh, steadfast love and mercy, would you uh, use us as conduits of your love? That in our actions and our movement towards others, you would be seen clearly. Lord, that you would help us not to just know these things, but to begin to practice these things, even taking risks and moving towards our neighbors. And God, where we have limited and shrunk our neighborhood down, would you once again give us eyes to see 
the expansiveness of just who our neighbor is. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, as we come before you, uh, we do bring our adoration. To you be all glory and honor and power. Uh, You who rescues and you who redeems. You alone are worthy of our worship. And so with our lives, would we uh, live for you? Loving as you have loved us. Rightly ordering our hearts to keep you at the center. And from the overflow of what you have given us, would we love those around us? Would you expand our, our neighborhoods? Expand our view of our neighbors around us and would you empower us and enable us to love as you have loved us for apart from you, this is impossible. But through you, all things are possible. So Lord, we give ourselves to you. Go before us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, as we close this morning, uh, next week, I want to encourage you to join with us as we begin our Advent series. And Advent is really just a word that means coming. We spend this season celebrating that Jesus has come, but also with our eyes fixed to the horizon that he is coming again and will come in glory. We look back while looking ahead and we hold on to the hope of the coming king. And so we're going to spend time proclaiming joy to the world. Uh, let earth receive her king. And I am, I am really looking forward to this time of just preparing our hearts together uh, to celebrate uh, who Jesus is. But as we leave from here today, my prayer for us is that may the God of mercy move you to love your neighbor. And in your love of your neighbor, may the beauty of God's mercy be seen as you walk in his grace and you find rest in his peace. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.